Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. My sense talking to the House leadership is there's a real sense that it may not be the full U.S. Innovation Competition Act. There may be some House climate change legislation in there. There is some pre-conferencing dialogue taking place. And I think the leadership sense, and I've had conversations with them, is to get this done hopefully in the next couple of weeks to have something that can pass both the House and Senate with a strong bipartisan vote. On the one hand, there's the historic policy of strategic ambiguity. You know, many folks are like Richard Haas and others are talking about strategic clarity and members in Congress are. And I, I've chosen to use the word strategic deterrence because deterrence also only works if there's clarity in what would happen if China changed the status quo. And I think when you say strategic clarity, that often is the military component of deterrence. There's economic deterrence or political deterrence. And I, I do think signaling to folks in, in Beijing and the CCP that here's the consequences. They're not just military consequences. There's economic consequences, political isolation, and so forth. Should they take aggressive actions and invade Taiwan? I'm Rexon Yu, managing partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Sherian Anchor at Bloomberg TV for Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, in our first podcast for 2022, we are pleased to welcome to Tea Leaves Congressman Ami Berra. Representative Berra has represented California's 7th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives since 2013. And he is currently a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where he serves as the chairman of the Subcommittee on Asia, the Pacific, Central Asia, and Nonproliferation. And before entering politics, Congressman Barra also had a 20-year medical career in the Sacramento area and worked as a professor and administrator at UC Davis. Congressman Barra is a first-generation American born and raised in California and longest-serving Indian-American serving in Congress. Congressman, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Rex and Sherian, thank you for having me on. Congressman, I just want to start with this piece of legislation that you've recently introduced, the Countering China Economic Coercion Act. We, of course, have seen the news recently as well about the China competition bill that has passed the Senate, but it's now sort of stalling in the House. I just wanted to ask you, why is it so important that we're focused on Beijing right now? We know we're going to be in a competition with Beijing over the next decades here in the 21st century. So it's important for us to understand how the PRC is approaching the world, how China under Xi Jinping is approaching the world. And the reason why we thought the economic coercion bill was so important is we have to understand how China uses the tools of coercion. You're watching this take place in real time with Lithuania and Lithuania's increasing recognition and partnership with Taiwan. China's retaliating and isolating Lithuania. You're seeing the European Union also react and think about how China is using the tools of coercion and then also how we can counter some of those tools. And that's really what we're asking for is a three-year study, but also setting up an interagency task force headed by the National Security Council to understand how China uses tools of coercion, then also understand what countermeasures we should be taking and have available to us. Has Beijing's influence increased over the pandemic? We've seen lots of news that they're 
influencing the economy and the politics in different regions through vaccine diplomacy and other sorts of aid. Certainly Beijing's become more assertive, not just with the pandemic, but certainly pre-pandemic, you saw that assertion, you know, going back to what they've done in the South China Sea, certainly building islands there on the coral reefs, you know, that really went against global standards and norms. You've seen more recently, you know, some of the retaliatory measures they've taken towards the Australians, you know, some of the response they've taken towards what would have been relatively mild sanctions on what's happening in Xinjiang against the Uyghurs. So, you know, Beijing is acting increasingly assertive under Xi Jinping. And again, we don't have to guess the direction that Xi Jinping wants to take um, the PRC right now, because you just have to look at his own words and, and speeches. Now, the hope is competition with China is fine. I mean, as long as everyone knows the rules of the road and it's a fair playing field. So the hope here is that we can actually you know, try to influence and steer China in a different direction. Congressman, just picking up on this conversation, you mentioned Xinjiang, and we've seen whether it's the increased focus by the Biden administration on Xinjiang or questions around Taiwan, some pressure, including on American companies and American entities here. Do you hear about this from kind of American business executives? We do. And I think that's why we were trying to take a thoughtful approach to the bill that recently passed both the House and Senate and you know, was signed into law by the president addressing the Uyghur issue. You know, we don't want to put our companies at a disadvantage, certainly, but we also understand the human rights issues and what's taking place in Xinjiang right now with the Uyghurs. You know, we're working in partnership with the Canadians, the Europeans. You know, I think people are starting to to notice. And, you know, we can't sit silent on that. And again, the hope here is that China is willing to understand that in the 21st century, there's no place for these work training camps and, you know, what's happening to the Uyghur population. There. I mean, it strikes me one of the challenges that we've seen in different contexts in the past is that there's risk of substitution to your point about disadvantaging American companies. And I think puts a premium on working with our allies and partners. How do you assess where we are today and the prospect of having that kind of consensus with not just European governments, but other you know leading governments around the world so that we're all marching in lockstep, not just at the government level, but at the industry level as well? I think we're in a much better place. And you know, some of this, I actually think, is because of how China is approached and kind of the heavy-handed approach. I mentioned earlier Australia. You know, had you asked me two, three, four years ago, I would have said the Australians took a very laissez-faire approach to China. But China's retaliatory measures towards Australia around questions of viral origin, the Australians raised, really have pushed the Australians towards us where they're probably one of our most hawkish, strongest allies in the region. You know, you've seen the quad elevated to the leaders level, which is that partnership between the United States Japan, India, and Australia take on new roles. You've seen China's heavy-handedness on India's northern border really push public sentiment and the Indians in our direction. And then I mentioned earlier, you know, I thought the Europeans were very close to inking a trade investment deal with China. And then China retaliated for, again, what I thought were minor comments by some EU countries and members about what was happening in Xinjiang which really tanked that deal. And now the Europeans are working very closely with us. And 
not just on issues of China, but you're seeing increased recognition of the tensions in the Taiwan Straits. And it will working closely with the Europeans and others to say, you know what, let's reduce this tension. Let's get back to a sense of peace and stability. But I think China is doing some of our work for us in terms of creating these multilateral coalitions. Uh, no, I think you're exactly right, Congressman. Can I just ask, just back on legislation, you mentioned the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. And I know you've expressed sort of optimism that the House will act early this year, hopefully maybe even this month, to move it and send it to President Biden for signature. And I think that would be a really encouraging development. I guess my question, Congressman, is what's taken so long? I mean, we all see a shift politically to a much greater and wider consensus on China. So it struck me that it's taken a little longer than at least some might have expected to kind of get this done through Congress, as hard as I know that is. Just curious, your perspective. You know, I think it has less to do with the actual legislation, the U.S. Innovation Competition Act that passed with a strong bipartisan vote in the Senate and came over to the House. I think it had more to do with, you know, what happened with the Build Back Better Act. So I think there was a sense that we'd come back from the August recess, quickly pass the infrastructure bill, quickly pass the Build Back Better Act, and then move on to, you know, the Yusika legislation. At this point, now that, you know, my sense talking to the House leadership is there's a real sense that it may not be the full U.S. Innovation Competition Act. There may be some House climate change legislation in there. There is some pre-conferencing dialogue taking place. And I think the leadership sense, and you know, I've had conversations with them, is to get this done hopefully in the next couple of weeks to have something that can pass both the House and Senate with a strong bipartisan vote. But I, I agree with you, Rexon, that there's, you know, this is the most nonpartisan issue right now. I mean, I think Democrats and Republicans, we may use slightly different language when we're talking about these issues, but on the strategy and recognition of, you know, where China's headed and where Beijing's headed, I think we're wide-eyed and I think Democrats and Republicans are on the same page. Will you have stronger momentum now that you're also going into midterm elections? What will... China's role be in the narrative that arises headed to the vote? Yeah, I think this election will turn mostly on domestic issues here, COVID, the impact of inflation. But in that, we know, you know that supply chain issues are something that we're talking increasingly about. And the supply chain issues and the supply chain disruptions are part of what's causing inflationary pressures right now. You see that in the semiconductor issue. And that's part of the reason why the Innovation Competition Act is so important, because in that legislation is the CHIPS Act, which would, again, help us. We invented the semiconductor industry, yet we've let a lot of that go. Let's bring it back. So I think that will be an issue. We'll talk about it differently as we're running our campaigns. But bringing that manufacturing back, we're having conversations about, you know, rare earth elements. And, you know, we talked about Chinese economic coercion, they've cornered the market on rare earths, and those are important for battery technology, et cetera. If they were to try to create a choke point there, you know, that would be very disruptive to, we've got stockpiles for our national security and DOD, but the economic disruptions could be quite severe. So again, we won't talk about that on the campaign trail, but we certainly are talking about how do we build redundancy in supply chains? How do we try to minimize China's economic power where they could create those short points. 
The way that the relationship is flowing right now seems to be a growing gap between the two. So uh, as we see these bills in Congress, we have the diplomatic boycott of Beijing's Olympics as well. What are the economic risks related to that? And not just economic, but also geopolitical, right? I mean, in the past two weeks, we had two missile launches by North Korea. It is a tense region right now. You're seeing the same rattling, as you mentioned, coming out of the north. You've seen you know, hypersonic missile testing out of China. They're constructing additional missile silos. And the last thing we want is to start a nuclear arms race in the region. So I agree with you that the relationship is tense right now, but we've got to find places where we might be able to cooperate. You know, one area that we've explored, the politics won't be easy, but is the global health arena, particularly in this pandemic? And are there places separating out the rhetoric around viral origins? I think they're really, you know, China has not cooperated with us, not because we want to place blame, but we want to understand how this happened so we can prevent it from happening again. But, you know, we have to work with China if we want to vaccinate 3 billion people around the world. We're not going to be able to do this by ourselves. And then hopefully we can work with China to build in surveillance systems to better understand you know, future pandemics, because COVID-19 is not the last new virus that we're going to encounter. Let's hope that at some point we will find that basis, Congressman, in the public global health arena, because I absolutely agree with you. One other area that people often look to in terms of where we've got sort of at least a strategic basis to work together is on the Korean Peninsula and North Korea. And Sherry mentioned the recent missile test, which if the indications are right, maybe North Korea's second test of a hypersonic type missile. I guess my question to you, a variety of successive U.S. administrations have struggled with North Korea now for you know, three decades to address the strategic threat coming out of Pyongyang. And you know, not a lot has moved, frankly, over the last 18 months. And really since the leader level meetings that President Trump engaged in where, you know, it yielded, frankly, very little. I'm interested to hear your perspective on just how urgent is the North Korea threat? Like, how do we approach a challenge that has bedeviled all of us for years and years and years? You know, it hasn't lost its urgency. I think it's been overshadowed by, you know, everything that's happening in the Taiwan Straits and, you know, obviously COVID-19 put a lot of things on the back burner, including North Korea, because we don't have a great sense of how bad COVID-19 has impacted the North Korean population. We know that there's a real humanitarian crisis there, food and insecurity, malnourishment, et cetera. But it's hard to, you know, as both of you know, it's hard to get great solid information out of North Korea. If I think about the Biden administration's early approaches, I think they were correct, which was really focusing on rebuilding or getting the Japan-Korea relationship to a better place. You know, you saw early two-by-two dialogues with Secretary Blinken, Secretary Austin, fairly early on. And then you saw the leaders of both Japan and Korea come to the White House as well. I think that was exactly the right thing to do, to try to get that relationship, the trilateral relationship, to a better place. I think if you look at Secretary Blinken's words, the door's open for dialogue with the North, but I don't think we should just engage in dialogue unless the North is ready to take real tangible steps. Now, I did not criticize the Trump administration. I was supportive of the dialogue that President Trump engaged in. 
I just think we gave the North things and the North never really gave us anything tangible. And I've shared this with the Moon administration that they should be cautious. I understand, you know, President Moon's legacy is, you know, he wants to get this North-South relationship to a better place. But if we're going to engage in dialogue, we need tangible actions by the North. And I just haven't seen that yet. Another key focal point, of course, of geopolitical tensions in the region has also been Taiwan. The U.S. seems to be engaging more officially with the government there. Does that pose risks with the relationship with China as well? So, you know, there's, again, this is another area where I've seen the strongest bipartisan support. Democrats and Republicans are largely on the same page here. So let me start, you know, folks in um, the PRC are listening to this. We've not changed our one China policy, right? This has been a policy that's been, you know, created peace and stability and prosperity, both for Taiwan as well as the PRC. So our intent is not to change the, the one China policy. What we have to do, though, is react to an increasingly aggressive Beijing that seems to be changing the calculus here, especially on the heels of what we saw as unprecedented actions in Hong Kong. Taiwan is not Hong Kong. Taiwan, the people of Taiwan have the ability to choose their path forward. And again, that's not the same as saying we've changed our one China policy. We introduced, you know, in a bipartisan way, the Taiwan Peace and Stability Act a few months ago, again, looking at how we can increase economic engagement with Taiwan, how we can work with Taiwan so they can you know, look at their own self-defense capabilities. And I think I just saw, you know, their, their recent budget come out. And it does look like they're allocating a, a significant increase in resources to enhance their own self-defense capabilities. That's a decision up to the people of Taiwan. And we fully respect that. And we expect the PRC to respect the decisions of the people of Taiwan. China's aggression and Beijing's aggression here has, again, this is a place where I think the European Union previously has been a little bit quiet, but with how aggressive Beijing has retaliated against Lithuania, I also, you're increasingly seeing the EU and other countries increase economic engagement with Taiwan. So China is doing our job for us, which is, you know, increasing recognition and engagement based on the aggressiveness of Beijing. Can I just pick up, Congressman, on Taiwan? The question of U.S.-Taiwan relations is one where over the decades, Congress has played a prominent I think significant role, as you know, going back to the Taiwan Relations Act. And more recently in this debate that has unfolded in Washington around whether the United States should have a clearer policy, clearer stated policy about its intent to defend Taiwan, you've you know laid out some views around the notion of strategic deterrence rather than strategic ambiguity. And two parts to the question. One, just if you briefly lay out your thinking, but two, I think more interestingly, I'm I'm interested in your views on how you see, whether you distinguish the role of congressional voices versus the executive branch in this debate. And are you, in your thinking, urging a shift away from strategic ambiguity by the executive branch, as well as sort of voices in Congress? Because I I think there's an interesting dynamic here in terms of how we reinforce our support for Taiwan, where the executive and the congressional branches of our government have roles to play. I absolutely agree with you. And on the one hand, there's the historic policy of strategic ambiguity, 
you know, many folks are like Richard Haas and others are talking about strategic clarity and members in Congress are. And I, I've chosen to use the word strategic deterrence because deterrence also only works if there's clarity in what would happen if China changed the status quo. And I think when you say strategic clarity, that often is the military component of deterrence. There's economic deterrence or political deterrence. And I, I do think signaling to folks in, in Beijing and the CCP that here's the consequences. They're not just military consequences. There's economic consequences, political isolation, and so forth. Should they take aggressive actions and invade Taiwan? I think that debate's taking place. And I think it's important that we're very clear in, in our language. That's why I always start with, we haven't changed the one China policy. We think that's been a policy that's led to peace in the region and prosperity, both for mainland China as well as for the people of Taiwan. That's still our stated policy in Congress as well as in the administration. It's China that's changing the calculus, which is forcing us to rethink and really signal in a very clear way to China the consequences should they change that calculus. And again, the economic pain that they would feel, the political isolation that they might feel. And that's a conversation I've had with European EU parliamentarians and, and others that I think we have to, it can't just be the United States, you know, if it's a multilateral coalition of nations, including Japan and others, because obviously Japan, Korea are right there in the neighborhood. So they're watching very closely what happens. And we obviously, those are treaty allies and we have assets and troops and others in that region as well. As is India, right? And, and it, as is India. Yeah. India in all of this. Yeah. So India's interesting, right? It's, India is historically a non-treaty allied nation. But again, what China is doing on their northern border, and I'm not sure what the strategic value of what they're doing is, but it's certainly from a public you know, if you look at polling of the Indian public, it's very anti-China right now. We have been doing, obviously, a lot of things jointly with the Indians in the maritime space in terms of joint exercises through the Quad. I think, you know, the Quad's not just now in a, a partnership geopolitical security. I think it also can now be an economic partnership. You know, we're doing a lot in the defeating COVID space around vaccine development, deployment, et cetera. So I think there's an opportunity to bring the Indians closer here. And they, they obviously see this assertive Beijing and are really paying attention to it. Congressman, can I ask, our conversation touched on the Quad arrangement and the AUKUS initiative among the uh, United States, Australia, and the UK from last year. And arguably over the course of last year, those are two significant strategic innovations, you know, driven by the United States. Certainly Quad dates back several years, back to the prior administration even before that. My question, Congressman, is looking ahead. As you think about Northeast Asia and our longstanding alliances with Japan, South Korea, any thoughts or views on whether innovations are needed in those alliances that may not be quite as far-reaching as, say, AUKUS, but are needed to continue to keep these alliances as relevant and effective and capable for the next 20 to 30 years. I'm, I'm curious, as you think forward, how do you see where the United States, where you might urge the Biden administration to go, 
with our two key allies up in Northeast Asia? Yeah, so I, th- I think that's a great question. And maybe the way to think about it is the post-World War II kind of alliance framework with Japan and Korea, you know, obviously it was very different than I think the next 75 years. If you obviously post-World War II, our relationship with Japan was rebuilding Japan and you know, helping it develop into a world-leading economy and a mature democracy and a strong ally. Same thing with Korea. If you look at where Korea was you know, 40 years ago, one of the poorest nations in the world to where this Korean miracle to where it is today, world-leading economy, very developed nation, very mature democracy, and a strong ally of the United States. I think it'd be a mistake for us to think about the alliance the way we did in the 75 years post-World War II. I think we should think about it in the 21st century. And I think that's the crux of your question. Knowing the domestic challenges we have here in the United States, you know, obviously you've seen that in our politics, but also the reason why the bipartisan infrastructure bill was so important is we've seen our own infrastructure fall behind the rest of the world. If you've been to Seoul recently or walked through downtown New York, it's like, okay, we've got some work to do here. Yeah, it was a little bit surprising moving here. (laughs) Right. So the next 75 years can't be the United States going alone. I think this partnership is exactly that, a partnership. It's an alliance, but a partnership. You're certainly seeing the South Koreans talk about increasing their self-defense capabilities. Certainly that discussion is taking place in Japan within the context of their constitutional restrictions, but they are certainly talking about you know their self-defense. And I think you know, we will work more closely together to create peace and stability in Northeast Asia, but also more broadly in Asia. And I think Japan's taking an increasing role in maritime security in the region. I think I saw reports of Japan's vessels you know, going by the Spratleys in South China Sea. I think that's all a good thing because then the burden isn't just on the United States. It's like-minded, like-value allies working together. And I think you know, bringing it back to the quad, I think that can be a framework for geopolitical maritime security, freedom of navigation issues. You know, it could be that. It could be a different arrangement. And I do see North Korea and Japan, you know, stepping up in a, a more assertive way. I think the Biden administration, right, you, you have a new administration coming in in Japan. We'll see the direction the elections go in Korea. And post their March elections, I think we'll jumpstart those conversations, both on the congressional side, but also within the administration. Finally, Congressman, you're also the longest serving Indian American in Congress. I just wanted to ask you about your identity. You're also being called a role model for younger Indian American colleagues. How do you reflect on that? Part of the reason why I love the United States of America is if you think about my parents immigrated here from India in the 1950s. And in one generation, they were able to see their son you know, get elected to, to the highest office. And I think that's the story of America through the ages, generations of immigrants coming here, working hard, building a better life for themselves, but also then building it forward to their kids. I never want to call myself a role model, but I understand that it's important to pay it forward, not just to the next generation of Indian American kids, but also broadly, it's exciting to see more Asian Americans running for for office, local office and Congress and having that voice at the table. Because I think As Asian immigrants, we have a unique experience as well, and we ought to share that experience and have that seat at the table 
Has that experience ever included challenges and what have you done to overcome them? You know, the, certainly there's challenges um, and you've seen it in the pandemic, right? I mean, you've seen the crimes against Asian Americans and that's always been there, right? I mean, it's been in the shadows. It came out more forcefully in the last two years and it's unfortunate that we have to go through that, but it has allowed Congress to start talking about that in the same way you talk about prejudice and racism towards African-Americans or, or other communities of color. I also see it bringing out a level of activism that I did not see when I was growing up, but you see it in younger Asian-Americans. And that's a good thing because now they're using their voice. They're using their activism. And I, I think you'll see this next generation. In some ways, I feel like I'm a bridge between the generation that immigrated here, that it was I kind of keep your head down, don't attract attention to yourself, just work hard and stay within your family community to the next generation that fully feels like they're part of the fabric of America and they're going to use their voice. Congressman, inspirational perspective and words to wrap up our session today. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you will continue to be a prominent voice on foreign policy, national security, the Indo-Pacific, and hopefully we look forward to having you back on the podcast later this year, perhaps after you've had a chance to be on a CODEL or two and get out and see different parts of Asia. Let's all hope we can get out <laughs> at some point this year. That's the hope. So again, thank you. And I look forward to being back on. Thank you, Congressman. And thanks to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You also can access the full video of our conversation on YouTube and at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on TVs.